Hello! I hope you've got your Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses because you are listening to Football Road Trip. My name, as far as I'm aware, is Luke Power and we have a fascinating show coming up today. Firstly, we'll be discussing the ferocity and meaning behind three Spanish derbies. And yes, these are even more extreme than the El Clasico. One frozen bottle of water knocks the severe boss when they don't And Lopera turns up at 6am, catches the players trying to escape through the window. Secondly, we'll be tabling our predictions for the end of the championship season. I've said it before and I'll say it again, he's a genius. I love the man. And in our club feature this week, Jack and I explore Oldham Athletic. Perhaps a yawning club at first glance, but with many intriguing details behind the scenes. In the first Premier League season, that was the first great escape. And joining us this week, we not only have our two regular guests on the show, but we also have Somebody phoning in all the way from London, Thomas Hill. How are you doing, Thomas? Yeah, not too bad. Shame I can't be phoning from Spain, but, uh, but this will have to do. Do you consider yourself a Spanish expert? I don't, know, I don't know if I consider myself an expert, but that's, that's very kind of you to say, so uh, let's have let's this podcast. Oh, you're an expert in my eyes, Thomas. And also somebody who's an expert at showing off his chest hair, Jack Goodwin. There you are. How are you doing, Jack, in your dressing gown? I'm doing all right, thank you, Luke. I've, uh, it's just a few strands, to be honest. I don't have much chest there at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just happy that football's back, to be honest with you, Luke. Yeah, well, so am I. And I can see that Sean's eyes are glowing at your chest there. Sean, <laughs> what did you make of the return of the Premier League, by the way? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty standard Man City victory against Arsenal and more VAR controversy. It's like it never left, really. Yeah, it was. Well, I've got to say, it was a pretty boring return by all accounts. The Sheffield United Aston Villa game, my dad was nearly falling asleep. I enjoyed it, Luke. I thought it was quite a well contested game with the ball being played along the floor. There was good chances. Dean Henderson got a good showing. Keenan Davis had a few good shots. I quite enjoyed the first Premier League game. Mm. Well, fair enough. Well, it's not only a Premier League that we can be enjoying at the moment because in recent times, La Liga has returned. And in light of that, we thought we would do a little segment on the alternative Spanish derbies, if you want to call them that way. Because, of course, outside of Spain, everybody talks about the El Clasico. But there are a few other derbies which are arguably a lot more fierce. And so we're going to start in southern Spain, the hottest region in mainland Europe, in Andalusia, with Sevilla and Real Betis. Uh, Thomas, do you just want to talk a bit about Andalusia, first of all, and kind of what it represents? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this is, yeah, this is a region which is um, quite close to my heart as well, actually, because we've, uh, you know, our family sort of spent quite a bit of time there. It's kind of, I suppose, the peak, what you would call the kind of Spanish stereotype of sun, flamenco. Obviously, that's a bit of a generalisation, but if any kind of region adheres to, to those stereotypes, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely Andalusia. And obviously, Seville being kind of the capital is, is a really important city there. I think it's important to point out, like you said, Obviously, Clasico and in more recent times, the Madrid derby have become these two sort of showpiece occasions in Spanish football. But actually, this rivalry between Sevilla and Betis definitely surpasses both of those in terms of like how deep it goes. It, it, you know, it divides families, it divides friends in the city. I don't think you know people outside of Spain maybe don't realise quite how big, quite how big a thing that is. Yeah, two absolutely massive clubs. Even when Betis were playing in the second division, they were clawing in. 45,000, 50,000 fans. Jack, definitely the passion of the region 
spills over into the derby. Do, would you say that one side has an upper hand overall? Um, I think it's a difficult one. Um, I, I I actually went to the, uh, excuse my pronunciation, but I went to the Ramon Sanchez Pijajan two years ago for the Sevilla against Atletico Madrid game, first game of the season. Uh, me and my friend uh, went um, for the game and we, we had a tour around Real Betis as well uh, a few days beforehand. So we had a, we had a look at the, the two real good Spanish clubs. And I've got to say, being in that stadium uh, for, I, can't, I don't know what Thomas might know, but there was, they, they sang some sort of theme at the start of the game. Um, and it was, it was just riveting, honestly. I, I went to Anfield earlier this year for the Liverpool-Man United game and I think that's the only game that rivals uh, that, that severe Atletico game in terms of atmosphere. It was uh, amazing. But if, going back to your recent question, um, if we're talking about club size and club-wise, I, I think Sevilla have definitely got an edge. I think they've won five Europa League titles mm. for UEFA Cups, uh, where Betis haven't done that yet. So, uh, yeah, I think Sevilla probably got the edge on Betis. Yeah, definitely. You have to look back to 1935 to when Betis won La Liga, but both, as you rightly say, two huge clubs in their own right. And Sean, there's a lot of mention that traditionally Betis are the side of the working class and Sevilla somehow this more affluent, opulent side. Do you go along with that or is it just a dated generalisation? I think... That aspect can be considered within fans even now in the chanting, in the way that they're brought up. They're brought, Real Betis fans are brought up with very much knowing that this is a working class side. And I don't think that tradition deserves to be necessarily lost just because maybe it's a bit outdated nowadays. I think that's part of the club's history and it should remain there. Yeah, Sevilla coming from the, the upper class Nervion district. There's actually there's a funny story that when Sevilla, they had a fan who ended up on the city council and he built a train station but didn't let it go as far as the Betis Stadium. So all the Betis fans had to walk about half an hour to get to their ground, which kind of just shows how the, the football informs even the politics of the region. And I'm sure you talk a bit more about that, Thomas, because we've also seen the club directors have had yeah. a bit of a war between them over the years. They're quite controversial figures. Yeah, I was looking forward to getting onto this. I mean, I think I think the rivalry's on a really nasty edge actually in in the northeast with these two presidents. You know, larger than life characters. You've got Manuel um, Ruiz de Lopera on the Betis side. On the Sevilla side, you've got Jose Maria del Nido. They're both basically, you know, incredibly nasty characters. I think both of them ended up doing jail for corruption charges eventually. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of summed up in these two points. I've, I've just read this really good book actually, which I recommend on the on the rivalry called The Frying Pan of Spain by Colin Miller. But um, he basically mentions these two quotes, you know, Lopera says it's his duty to stir up the derby, so that already shows that he's going to be kind of going to be using rivalry as a, you know, proxy, the fans as proxies in his personal battle with Del Nido. And Del Nido says he's the most important man in Seville after the Pope, so, you know, <laughs> you know something bad's going to happen when, when you've got two quotes like that. Um, and, yeah, it all, sort of all kicks off in this, there's this 2007... Fraca in the in the director's box between uh, Donido and, and by then Lopera was uh, wasn't president anymore, but he had this big bust directed of him. Um, and so Lopera's nephew gets involved with Donido. They have a scrap. This obviously stirs up the fans for various objects. And I think the real kind of nadir of the whole derby arrives in the return leg of the Ray quarterfinal later that month um, at Betis Stadium. 
So they go ahead, bottles are thrown towards the bench, and one like fro- one frozen bottle of water knocks the severe boss when they're down on half court. So that kind of shows, you know, just what sort of level of intensity that derby reached. But that was, you know, that was definitely a low point. But at the same time, a high point in, in terms of the passion. Obviously, that was it literally spilling onto the pitch. Absolutely. And like you mentioned Lopera, he's definitely somebody who seemed to assume this great control over the club. He named the stadium after himself. And there's also this amazing story of, and take ourselves back to Halloween 2001. Apparently Lopera is known for having sort of informers and people who watch on the players for him. And apparently half of the squad had told their wives that they were going to a lovely club dinner. Actually, they went to a private party with 38 uh, ladies and and Lopera turns up at 6am, tipped off by one of his informers and catches the players trying to escape through the window. It just goes to show he has this sort of control over the squad when he was in charge. And, and you mentioned as well the crowd trouble. Absolute savages. Sean, you probably know all about this because you went on a bit of a lad's holiday with your granddad to Spain a couple of years ago, didn't you? To Malaga. <laughs> I did. I went to go see um, Malaga play Atletico Madrid. I think it ended 1-0 to Atletico Madrid. Bit of a boring game, but to just it was my first game that I've watched a ball and it was just spectacular to watch one without any roof over the stands in the sun. It was only February. It was, it was an incredible experience. But I was also going to ask Thomas, Thomas, from an outsider looking in, like what Jack mentioned before, Sevilla are the bigger club almost we. I assumed as well that Sevilla was a big club. But when I read that, the frying pan book that you mentioned before, it said that Real Betis had more support. Is that the case in Spain? Are Real Betis considered the bigger side? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose they're, they're both absolutely huge institutions, as we both said. I mean, um, Betis, yeah, fourth best supported team in the country, which kind of makes up for the, for the lack of trophies in a way. And Sevilla, Spain's second oldest football club. I think... Betis have really got this, I mean, I think that the words they used to describe their philosophy is this make it good, that thing, which I think is similar to Atletico's in this idea that, you know, it's kind of win or lose will always be will always be with you, but mostly, you know, mostly through the losses, mm. which is obviously a big thing. I would say that historically, Sevilla would probably have to, you'd have, probably have to say they were the more successful side, but yeah, I mean, Betis, so well supported. Um one thing I was going to say, uh, Luke, actually, was that I feel like in recent years, Sevilla have definitely had to reinvent themselves in the era of Real yeah. Madrid and Barcelona's dominance. So, you know, hence the, the five record Europa League trophies since 2006. I think it's a sign that they've realised, you know, even even though they've obviously won the Copa del Rey in 2010, 2007, it's had to be more about kind of European glory in recent years. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned reinventing themselves. I think we see that on a almost a season-by-season basis where they bring in players regularly at a young age and, and offload them for bigger sums. Navas, Sergio Ramos, Rakitic. There are a few examples in recent years, and that's thanks to their worldwide network of scouts. I know um, director of football appointed at the turn of the century, uh, Ramon Rodriguez Verdejo, established a network of about 700 scouts around the world who are decided to kind of identify what they want, work with that model and pr- produce players who are better and worth more money than when they signed them. Do we, do we want to move on to the second derby now? We're moving away from Andalusia to 
another nice enough place, but somewhere a bit gloomier, a bit darker, a bit more mythological, you could even say, with Galicia in northwest Spain. We're talking about Celta de Vigo and we're talking about Deportivo de La Coruña. Celta Vigo were founded as a merger between clubs in 1923 and see themselves as the club representing the Galician region. Meanwhile, Deportivo were founded by students who had gone over to England, studied and come back. And we actually see that with a number of Spanish clubs, which I suppose raises the tantalising question, what on earth were they teaching in these English universities to make all of these students suddenly so imbued with footballing knowledge and able to found the football clubs? In terms of success over the years, Thomas, who, who do you think has had the upper hand? Well, I mean, OK, these are, these are two sides who I don't think historically have been quite as successful as, as Sevilla and Betis. Deportivo winning their sole La Liga title in, in this mad kind of 1999-2000 season with uh, the Celta Vigo coach, Idureta, um, which kind of just shows just how far this rivalry goes. You know, they obviously will never, ever forgive him for for that kind of jumping ship that he that he did. I mean the identity is quite an interesting one. You've got kind of Depor calling Celta Portuguese because of their proximity to Spain's neighbours and this idea that some Spaniards will like mock Portugal's historic economic troubles. On the other hand you've got Celta fans calling their rivals Turks for some unknown reason which people don't seem to know. <laughs> kind of take on those identities and use them against their rivals by waving the flags of each country at mm. those derbies, which I found, I found quite interesting. I think that's a sign of how you can take like, an insult by one of your closest neighbours. I really think in this case it's one of those one of those situations where, where you know, the more similar you are to someone, the more similar these two sides are, the more they hate each other mm. because they're united by this Galician identity. Mm. But at the same time, that doesn't mean they don't hate each other on the football pitch, far from it. Yeah, it's kind of strange. They are united in this representing Galicia and they sing the local anthem before the game. You mentioned Deportivo doing incredibly well in recent years. They're not doing so well at the moment, but Jack, do you just want to talk a bit about kind of all of their successes at the turn of the 21st century? Uh, yeah, so, well, I'll, I'll actually start off for, with the 1993-1994 season in which it's gone down to the final day. Deportivo, all they need to do is win a game and they've won the La Liga, something that is really unheard of for them. So they were set to play Valencia and all they needed to do was win and they won the La Liga because Barcelona were just behind them. And as it turns out, uh, the game actually ended up going nil-nil all the way to the last uh, kick of the game where Deportivo get a penalty. The usual penalty taker for Deportivo apparently, allegedly, walked away and said he didn't want it. He was too scared. To a different penalty taker who who apparently had so much fear on his face because if he missed that, he would be hated for the rest of eternity. But if he scored, you know, obviously he would um, he would he would be loved. And he ended up missing the penalty, and uh, the game ended nil nil, and Deportivo actually didn't win. The title, um, and but it turns out that Barcelona actually paid Valencia players. Valencia got a bonus from that form. Uh, actually, really? yeah. So that that's all uh, some sort of problem uh, that's gone on in the past. If we're talking about the turn of the century, as Thomas referred to, Javier Igarete left um, left Celta Vigo to join. <laughs> Good <Deportivo>. pronunciation. <laughs> um, he uh, he joined he joined uh, he joined Deportivo. 
and uh, they had a massive boost. I believe Rivaldo had a, had a little spell there at Deportivo, and they ended up actually winning the title. And then two years after that, they finished second, year after that, third. And then I think ever since then, it's, it's been a bit downhill, hasn't it? Yeah, but they won the Copa del Rey in 2002, didn't they, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, a, that was a big title as well. Again, you know, they're, they're just two victims kind of of the, of the Spanish duopoly I think we've seen in recent times. Obviously, Atletico breaking into it. I do think these derbies, in a way, become more special because of that. Because whereas the, the Classico, I think, has become this kind of globalised thing, far removed from roots, these derbies are clearly so so rooted in the, in the regions when they happen. You know, in the case of the Seville derby, in Seville itself, in the case of the, the Galician derby in Galicia, and the same for the bus for the bus derby. So I really do think that these these derbies, if anything, have taken on more importance in this kind of globalised age. Yeah, you mentioned the Basque derby. That's the final derby we'll be covering today between uh, Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad. It's quite hard to get your head around if you are not from the Basque region that Bilbao have this transfer policy where they will only sign players from the region or players raised at local clubs. We don't really see that anywhere else. Sean, what do you make of that policy, first of all? Because Do you think it's a limitation or does it encourage youth development? It's got to encourage youth development to a certain aspect. I mean, how many times have we heard people say that the reason English football has failed in recent years on an international scale is because there's too many people coming over that's taken opportunities away for English youngsters and that cancels out the option for that. And I think it certainly develops the youth. It's obviously going to hinder their personal progress as a club in terms of they're limited in who they can buy, etc. But for actual ability within that region, it's got to bolster it. Jack, how about you? What, what, what do you think? You're an advocate for youth development yourself. You train a local kids team. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And um, I think I, I really admire the way they go about it. I mean, Athletic Bilbao, I'm not, uh, obviously Thomas would be more knowledgeable on this, but I would say they are a top four club in, in Spain. I think it's between them and Valencia who takes that fourth spot in terms of historically a massive club. I mean, they've always been La Liga. Yeah, only, they're one of, only one of the three sides to have never been relegated along with Real Madrid and Barcelona. Yeah, so it's like similar to our sort of Arsenal and Everton sort of territory. They're, they're not the, especially with Everton, they're not the, the biggest side. They haven't got the greatest achievements in the world, but they've always been able to stay up and they've always had decent teams. I mean, Marcelo Bielsa was the manager there. Um, I know, Luke, I'm actually going off the original question that you asked. Uh, That's okay. So, I think, I think it's an interesting one because if you only gave chances to the players in, in your region, I mean, there's so we do it in England. In England. Our, um, academy categories state that unless you're a really big club, you can only have players from about an hour away. So it's not as uncommon as people think. It's just they take it to a, a huge extreme. We're, we're such a big country in terms of we have such competitive leagues even down to a third, fourth, fifth tier. I mean, mm. Spain have 80 teams in their third tier. Mm. Uh, so it goes from real top teams to real bottom teams where we've our third, fourth, fifth tier, I would say are, are probably the strongest in, in the world um, mm. in terms of that infrastructure. So I, I don't know how it worked because I, we're going to come on to Oldham later, but if you had youngsters uh, uh, who or their players, would would that one go to Oldham? Which one would go to Ro- uh, Rochdale? Which one would go to Bury? Which one yeah. would go to Man City? Macclesfield, Man United? Like, there's so many clubs just in one area of the country. It would be impossible to implement, I think. 
Yeah, and do you think, uh, Thomas, that Real Sociedad have had an advantage because of that? They were doing that until 1989, but then they stopped that. But I reckon Bill Bauer, still in the pantheon of the Spanish greats, managed to always be above Sociedad. Yeah, I mean, that is really impressive. As you were mentioning, obviously Sociedad had the same policy until 1989. And then I think it becomes clear that their basketball rivals are overtaking them a bit. And so you've got this weird transfer where uh, John Aldridge uh, comes over from Liverpool. Sorry, not weird, because obviously a great player. But I think that was slightly controversial at the time because obviously he was the first, he was the first non-Basque player to to join the club. One one thing which I don't think we've we've mentioned much actually these last two derbies in the Galician derby and the Basque derby is um, the influence of of Francisco Franco, the obviously the fascist leader of Spain for for so many years, and he he looked to stamp out any kind of difference. So these derbies have taken on more significance since then. I mean, the, the Basque derby is, produces one of Spanish football's most iconic moments in 1976. You've got this image of the two the two captains of both sides um, leading, their, leading their sides onto the pitch, carrying the Iquilina flag of the Basque country, which had been outlawed and, and was still outlawed at the time, punishable with a, with a prison sentence. And that was a real kind of show of the fight from from the two powerhouses of, of Basque football. And in recent years, I mean, we've seen how, how other Basque sides have also made it up the leagues and are doing really well. Abas brings to mind, that's become kind of a Basque derby in itself. Mm. So that's really, that's really good to see. That it's, it's kind of gone totally, totally against that. Uh, you know, they've both kind of embraced the, that Basque uh, identity to the point where even both sets of fans mix before games, take part in shared events. But again, that doesn't mean that on the pitch, it's not as uh, fierce as ever. Yeah, and do you think that there's any way that they could claw themselves back to the top of the Spanish football table? Or do you think that now the Madrid clubs and Barcelona, are they just steaming ahead indefinitely? I think it's, I think it's very difficult. One positive you'd have to say for Athletic Club is because of that policy, they do drive such a hard charge the players. In general, they're not... Really, they're not really going to let go of their players unless there's a really exceptional offer on the table. As a result, they, you know they're doing quite well, quite well financially. But I really, I do find it hard to see how, with this policy in place, they could make it to the very top of La Liga again. I mean, Real Sociedad have now got a great, great young team, young side as well. But again, it's just two, two victims of of that duopoly, and and potentially turning into three teams as well now with Atletico up for. Yeah, it is absolutely incredible what they've achieved with their local policy. I know if you look in northwest England, my team never got out of the bottom division with local players. So it just goes to show uh, exactly how good Bill Barbeen. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. That brings us to the end of the derby section, but you've been brilliant for us. So thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. I'd love to come back on again. Oh, we'd love you back. And you do have a uh, La Liga blog going on at the moment. Yeah, so it's just a, it's basically a newsletter until the end of the season, kind of charting the last five weeks of the season, and it's called uh, El Segundo Tiempo.substack.com. Um, try and work that one out. <laughs> <laughs> to the listener, please check it out. He's done some amazing uh, articles. Thank you, Thomas, and speak to you soon. Thanks. See you guys later. Bye. And with Sean Byrne back from the toilet, it is time to move on to the championship. Uh, the championship returns tomorrow with quite a few games, tomorrow being the 20th of June. And it is a very hot promotion and playoff race. Guys, we're going to talk about from numbers one to six, where we think each team's going to finish and who's going to finish him. So who are we saying for 
first position? For me, it's obviously between three teams. I don't think you can rule out Fulham just yet, but I think if you're looking at it logically and you're looking at how the teams have performed this season, um, it's going to go right down to the wire in terms of who's winning the title. I think the best two sides in the league um, have quite clearly been Leeds and uh, West Bromwich Albion. Leeds have, uh, have played teams off the park this season and the thing they've been lacking is certainly a goal scorer. I mean, that's not to discredit Patrick Bamford, who who is has led the line admirably, but he's, I mean, he's, he's only got a meagre 13 goals in 35 games, uh, which is, I mean, which is in contrast to the West Brom team who've got like sort of Matus Pereira, Callum Robertson, Grady Diangana, uh, Matty Phillips, how Robson Carnu are all banging in the goals for West Brom. I think both of them are going to go up, and if I'm pushed to say who will win the title, I think it will be Leeds United. Right, so you've gone for the bottlers from last season to win the league, and Sean, what about you? Yeah, I've got to agree. I don't think they'll bottle, bottle this season. I know all the talk about Leeds United and what, what's happened in the past with how close they've got. Is circling now, especially with this breakup. But Bielsa is just a genius, in my opinion. And the defence has been unbelievable this season, and I just can't see them slipping up from here. Yeah, how how do you feel about the term bottlers? Because I absolutely hate it when people use it, because I don't see why any of the Leeds players would be nervous about winning the title. But don't you think that when they reach, they, they, they could have some nightmares about what happened last season and with the West Brom pushing right behind them, then maybe they could resurface those worries. And they know that they have that it's, potential to slip up. It's not just last year, though. I mean, they were in the playoffs um, mm. the year before, looking really good for the season. And then Gary Monk, uh, Gary Monk was in charge, and they went on a bit of a losing streak in the final nine games. And they were, I think they were like second or third, and they ended up finishing seventh. They missed out on the final day. Um, and they've always had that. Thing of, of being bottles ever since the relegation in 2003, uh, 2004. Sorry, so, um, I, I think it's certainly interesting. I, I, I think last year wasn't really a bottle job performance from them, though. Um, it was oh. prob- I think West Brom were more of a bottle job because they were up and around there. The, the uh, for some reason, sat Darren Moore, which has got to be one of the worst sackings in history. And uh, they, they never found an actual appointment. They had Jimmy Shan and Michael Appleton in joint caretaker charge. And West Brom had a much better team than Leeds last year. So, um, yeah, I think, it, I think it is unfair to call them bottle jobs. Mm. Yeah, OK, we can brush that argument aside. But what about the fact that Kiko Casilla still got six games left on his suspension because he, he was accused of racially abusing Jonathan Lico at Charlton and he, he was hit with an eight-game ban? They have unconvincing options in replacement. Do you think that'll play a massive role? No, I can't say I'm a, an expert on Ilan Messlier, uh, who has come in place for him. Uh, young French goalkeeper, 20 years old. But I think, I think he's a decent keeper. There's a lot of rave about him. There's a lot of people saying he is going to be the next big thing. Um, They've got, I think they believe they've got Will Hoffer as well, who will probably be on the bench for them. They've just bought a young lad, 17 years old, from Poland, so they might be interested to see him on the bench. I mean, it is young to have a goalkeeper at the age of 20, at the top end of championship. But from what I've seen from Mesley, I think it was the game against Hull City, in which they won 3 or 4 nil. 
Um, he looked very competent with the ball at his feet and looked like a, a modern-day goalkeeper. A modern-day goalkeeper. That's very good. That's nice of you. Um, uh, Sean, why, why do you think that Leeds have a... Do you think the Leeds have a better squad overall than West Brom? Because I look at the West Brom team and I just think that's made for the Premier League and they've got so many diverse options. They can play any different system. Whereas I look at that Leeds team, I think Patrick Bamford's never really made it at Premier League level. Ben White and um, Calvin Phillips, they've been mentioned in the England setup by Southgate, potentially. But aside from that, surely West Brom are the far better team, Sean. And that's a very good argument, to be honest, is that West Brom could have the better squad. Jack's shaking his head in, infuriated. But I think it's a solid point. I think there's certainly not a massive gap between the two squads, but I think the big difference is Bielsa. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. He's a genius. I love the man. <laughs> he is a Premier League manager, and I think he's got a, he'll take them there this year. And okay. the Leeds fans deserve it. Mm, yeah, no, they absolutely do. Jack, you were shaking your head vigorously there. Well, last season, uh, no, uh, West Brom, don't get this wrong, West Brom have certainly got a top six side. Leeds have got a top six side. Arguably a top three side, both of them. I think Fulham have got the strongest squad in, in the division. I think uh, they've certainly got the strongest. But I think if you put in Leeds and West Brom in terms of who's got the strongest squad on paper, I think it's got to be Leeds. I mean... With West Brom, you look at the big names like Gareth Barry, Charlie Austin and Jay Livermore. They, they bring it up, but you forget that the two fullbacks to be playing all season, Connor Townsend and Dara O'Shea, have come from absolutely nowhere. Um, Connor Townsend, I think, was playing for Scunthorpe last year. And Dara O'Shea has come from the academy. Um, and they've also had a young lad called Nathan Ferguson who has been very uh, highly talked off of potentially making a move to the Premier League, who's been playing right back and centre-back this season. Um, and and he's, he's been playing there. And even Semi Ajayi, he was relegated with Rotherham last year and he's become a, a key part of that defence. So I think, it's, I think it would, would be harsh to say to Slavin Bilic that, oh, you should be winning the league. Because I think he has done a very good job. But I, how, so has Marcelo Bielsa. Okay, so you said that you think Fulham have the best squad in the league. And with games against Leeds and West Brom remaining, if they win both of those games, do you think that Fulham are in with a chance of catching up or is the gap just too big to make up? They're currently six points off West Brom. It's definitely not out of question. I think the thing that's going to come into it is with the championship at this stage of the season... Anyone can beat anyone. You look at the bottom of the league, Luton Town, they could go to Leeds United, they could go to Ellen Road and win 3-0. It, it's absolutely, a fan, it's a fantastic league um, in terms of entertainment-wise because you never know who's going to beat anyone. But I think it's going to come down to, you look at those three teams, though it's probably going to be two of those three teams that take the automatic promotion places. I think what's going to come down to it is Bielsa and Billich have got the experience. And that, that's not to discredit Scott Parker, because he's done a pretty decent job in his first full season as a manager at Craven Cottage. But I think they, they definitely have that added experience, and I think that's what it's going to come down to. Sean, with your heavy bias towards Preston North End, are they going to finish third? They can't be looking at that. They, they can't be looking as far as trying to decide where they finish inside the top six. Their focus just has to be finishing inside the top six and then taking and anything can happen in the playoffs. I think the gap is pretty big. I'd say the top five is pretty secure, in my opinion, and there's only one more 
position available to try and fight for the playoffs and North End have to just be trying to try and get as many points as they can. Mm. Do you think that Preston have any glaring weaknesses that might stop them from getting in the top six? <laughs> Jack's nodding his head. I'll let him take that one. He's oh, pretty yeah. certain about that. 100%. I think, I think if you're looking at the talent of, of how they've actually played this season, I wouldn't even have North End in the top half. And this is coming from a North End Whoa. fan. I think we've we've had the rub of the green this year, which has been unlike us. We've won penalties more than any other teams. I think we had, was it 11 penalties within 20 games of the season? Um, which is absolutely mad. It's allowed Daniel Johnson to score 11 goals this season with nine of them coming from the penalty spot. Um, and I think this is not to discredit North End at all um, because we don't have the biggest players' names. We don't have the the most money. We don't have the biggest fan base. But we've done well with what we've had. And um, But I, I think a lot of times this season, North End haven't, dominated on the pitch to be honest with you we haven't played teams off the park we haven't gone to a stadium and won 3-0 we've actually walked gone and won but we've won by taking our chances it's it's not because we're dominating the game we we seem to take our chances when they come about and we seem to win penalties when they come about so yeah I, I would say in terms of actual performance wise I think we are definitely overachieving but that's not to discredit Alex Neal and, and the players. Maybe plenty of penalties practice then if you get into a, a shootout. Sean, your hands flying up into the air. Well, I was going to say, that's the beauty of the championship though, isn't it? Is that before the season, you just can't predict where anyone's going to finish. Squads aren't that important. When anyone can be anyone. The championship is the literal definition of that. You look at the like of Stoke City. Middlesbrough, on paper, they should be flying, in my opinion. Easily fighting for playoffs or promotion. And they're in a relegation scrap at the moment. It's, it's an absurd league to, to get out of, to stay in. in, in that's, that's the beauty of it. And so, like Jack says, yes, Preston are overachieving. But how many times have we seen teams overachieve, make it to the Premier League and then survive? Yeah, no, that is absolutely the beauty of the Championship. And the beauty is that means I can say that PNE will not make the playoffs. And I'm going to opt for Millwall, which might be unpopular, but hey, Millwall up front have Tom Bradshaw, who I managed on FIFA at Shrewsbury many years ago. I've got to say, he was absolutely instrumental in getting me up to the championship and, and beyond. So surely nobody, nobody with Gary Rowett at the head of Millwall, nobody can take sixth place if they're hanging around with Tom Bradshaw. Since Gary Rowett's gone in, he's done a tremendous job. I thought it was slightly strange that Neil Harris had left. He seemed to be doing a pretty decent job at Millwall, just keeping them staying afloat, which is where, um, whereabouts they should be. Uh, but Gary Rowett's gone in and he's actually played a very entertaining style of football. He switched, he switched to a three at the back in which Marlon Romeo um, became a real crucial player in that team at right wing-back. Bombing up and down. I know he's very highly rated at the moment by the Millwall fans, but I think they've, they've still got that bullish territory on the pitch. That, that they've still got your Sean Hutchinson's, your Coopers uh, at the back, uh, just behind them. You know, you've got Bartosz Bielkowski. Um, it's, it's it's still it's they're still hard to score against, but they're playing with more oomph, more attacking intent. And uh, yeah, I think Gary Rowett's done a good job. And 
I would agree with you, Luke, in that if any one's going to break into that top six, I think it will be Millwall. That is incredible. Sean, surely you don't agree with me. I'd argue that Bristol City, if anyone was going to go up, that's not in, if anyone was going to reach the top six that's not currently inside it, was going to make it, it would be them. <laughs> as bizarre as it sounds, this global pandemic couldn't really come at a better time for them in terms of the form they were in before this, without a winning five after a cracking start to 2020. They've got the squad, they've got the, the fans behind them. And I think from what I've seen of them before their dismal run, uh, in the last five games they were playing well and they deserve to be inside that top six and comfortably so I think if anyone was going to do it it would be them Yeah and then when we get to the playoffs who on earth do we think is going to go up I know it's so hard to call but if somebody was pointing a very dangerous weapon at you and said well I'm going to use a very dangerous weapon if you don't give a one club answer who would you say Jack? For me I've said this since the start of the season. I said at the start of the season it will be Nottingham Forest and Preston North End playoff final. Um, okay. I still think it will be a Nottingham Forest Preston North End playoff final. Um, but I'm going to go for Nottingham Forest. Oh. Um, I, I, I've had a problem with Forest in the past few years. You, you'd find, in terms of, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you you both know, and uh, our listeners in the future will start to learn that I like my managers. Um, I like managers being given time. I don't agree with many managerial sackings. Um, I, I just love the managerial business. And Nottingham Forest, probably up there, is the most savage football club in England in terms of chopping managers. Um, I mean, Ito Karanka left under seventh. Martin O'Neill last year was brought in and was only given a couple of months. And then they were like, oh, that didn't work out. We finished tenth. So let's go for someone else. But I liked it when they went for Sabri Lamucci. I can't say I knew too much about him, but I had a chat with my dear friend Luke about him when he was appointed. And I, I know um, we had a chat and he, he did very good things at Rennes in, in, uh, in, in France. And the, I think he's brought something to Nottingham Forest. I, I'm not going to be as bold and say Brian Clough factor, <laughs> um, but he's there's something. I, I know a couple of Forest fans and I've spoken to them and they've said they've never experienced anything like it. Um, in terms of going to the city ground and supporting Nottingham Forest, in terms of there's just a, a belief around the club for the first time in years that they can make that jump to the first division. So um, I think they've got the spine in the team. They've got Lewis Graben up top, who is, if you want a championship striker, it's either him, um, Jordan Rhodes, Ross McCormack, or Dwight Gale. I think those are the four strikers. If you want to go well, up, sign got the best beard, hasn't he? Well, it's a, it's it's rivaling mine for the best <laughs> beard, actually. Um, but no, I mean he's thirty-two years old now. Um, on my game football owner, uh, Alex Neil has tried to get to sign, wants to, me to sign him as a as a new player. But I'm not I'm not signing him because he's too old. But I'm going to go oh. against what I've, I'm doing in my football owner game. Too I old, think he's a, a top. Yeah, but he's a top forward for. Oh, he's a uh, he's a top forward for Nottingham Forest, and then in midfield they've got Ben Watson, who's thirty-four, sitting in that midfield, sitting FA in that four-one-four-one formation. FA Cup winner with Wigan Athletic. Um, he was written off last year. He didn't even have a number last year towards the end of the season. He's now back in his number eight role, and uh, he's well loved by the Forest fans. And then 
In the fence, you've got Michael Dawson, who's 36 years old, and Joe Worrell, who is the future for Nottingham Forest. He's the next Stuart Pearce for them. Um, and then in goal, they've got Bryce Samba, the best goalkeeper in the Championship this yeah. season. Or one of the best goalkeepers. So, yeah, I think they've got that spine in the middle. But I think it's going to be interesting to see who Sean's going to go for. Well, unbelievably, because the playoffs are so hard to predict. I've actually predicted the same team in Nottingham. Um, I think they're the perfect example of a team, like I was saying before, that shows how hard it is to escape from the championship. They've been inside that division since 2008, only reached the playoff twice, and I don't think that's been done since 2011. Um, this season, like Jack mentioned before, it's their best chance they've had in nearly a decade now. And there is just something about them. I mean, they are, apart, aside from West Brom, they are unbeaten from any of the other top seven sides. So that includes Leeds United, who they've uh, done the double against drawing and winning. Uh, North End, they got hard-earned drawn, done the double over Brentford this season. And my philosophy is that that's what the playoffs come down to, how you perform head-to-head with the other teams. There's no more to it. Forms don't come into it. Anything prior to that doesn't come to it. It's how you play against the opposition in front of you. And I think going into that, Nottingham Forest have the best chance and that's why they'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. Anything can go wrong. Maybe we'll see, like when Tottenham were trying to get in the top four and, and then they had a nasty meal the night before and all the players got ill and they didn't qualify for the top four. Who, who knows what is going to happen? It was it was your prediction. You know, said yeah. Forest as well. You know, you know what? I actually, I'm saying we're being firm. This is the thing I actually don't know because I really, really like Brentford, and I think you know they have some really good possession-based football under Thomas Frank. I'm not going to pretend that I've watched them every game this season, but from what I've seen, and and you know their BMW front line with Ollie Watkins, one of the most prolific strikers in the Championship probably besides Mitrovic, and then um, Mbueno and Benrahma on the wings. I, I just think that, that they're really useful out wide, and that's something that they can probably exploit against, say, the likes of West Brom, who like to push their full-backs up high, and it will be interesting to see whether they can use those sorts of tools against other teams. I feel very sorry for Fulham, because they've been, I think, the best form in the league in the second half of the campaign. But I think, like you say, Jack, Scott Parker is inexperienced and I'm not sure you can place him above the likes of Lamushi, who, as you say, I'm very fond for ex-Ivory Coast manager, ex-Ren manager, taking them into the Europa League a few years ago. Yeah, so. I, hope, I hope Scott Parker gets given time because he, he's got a tough job there. I mean, I don't envy him because even though Fulham got, in my opinion, the best squad in the league, to have that amount of expectation in your first job to get Fulham back into the Premier League, they've got an ambitious owner in um, Mr. Khan. Um, so I, I, I really hope he gets given time because I think he could develop into being a, a very good manager. Um, so, and I think it's always about that first job. You need to be given time in your first job. Absolutely. Right, okay, that concludes our championship talk. And we're now going to move down a couple of leagues lower because our club feature this week. Jack, you suggested Oldham Athletic, and initially I was like, what on earth is he talking about? Is there anything exceptional at all about Oldham? And I read a bit more and I thought, well, this is still a bit boring. But you know what? They've won me over, and I'm going to let you have the honour of introducing Oldham in whatever way you like, actually. 
because I think the 1990s were the most exceptional time in their history under Joe Royal. But is there any, any particular way you want to introduce Oldham? I think we're looking at one of, and if there's any Oldham fans listening tonight, I'm not trying to offend you or your club, but at the moment, one of, if not the most turbulent clubs in the Football League. Um, they've gone from being the people's club in the, uh, the late 80s and the early 90s, as referenced by Nottingham Forest captain and future manager Stuart Pearce, um, so from People's Club to now one of the most turbulent clubs, they um, seem to stay in League One for an eternity. They were, I think, they were in there from 1997, and they were only just relegated in 2019. Um, there was no promotion in those years, um, and obviously the relegation are now Oldham, a mid-table League Two team, but. Uh, there is a lot of history about Oldham Athletic, a lot of great history. And like you mentioned, Luke, the early 90s in which they were in the top division and eventually into the Premier League. And uh, Joe Royal's a bit of an icon there. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned probably quite a boring recent existence on the pitch. They haven't finished in the top half in League One or League Two for 11 years. They've not had a promotion push for 14 years. Yeah, it seems like they've quite industrially plodded on. In the 1990s, Jack, or just a bit before, actually, we'll go to the late 1980s, a young man called Joe Royal, who'd been in charge for a few years, suddenly oversaw what became the most exciting club in the most exciting period in the club's history. And for people outside looking in, were they a bit scared of Joe Royal and his Oldham upstarts? Yeah, well, they certainly were. I mean, they took a they took a, a big chance on appointing Joe Royal whilst they were in the second division. He was a, a bit of a club legend at Everton. Obviously, went on to manage Everton numerous times after then. Um, but the the they had a pitch at Boundary Park, which similar to what Deepdale's was at Preston North End. They had the AstroTurf pitch, but we're not talking the pristine AstroTurf pitch that we may see at Harrogate Town at the moment. It, I'm actually talking about the hockey pitch that when you go to slide tackle on, you you come away with half your leg. It, it, that, that's 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 the reality of the situation. Um, and and at football team at football teams, the opposition will turn up with uh, with multiple boots and because um, they didn't know what to wear. Teams would be taking different types of footwear out. Um, I'm not sure why. The players on the opposition didn't just look at what the Oldham players have on and wear yeah, the same them. things. But uh, yeah, I think they definitely have that home advantage, like Preston offended because teams didn't know how to play on that AstroTurf. Yeah, the home advantage is something that I've always been a bit sceptical about. I think in recent years we've seen away teams seem to gain more and more points. But with Oldham, for whatever reason, it seemed to be that they were really, really imperious at home and really, really, really feeble away. Uh, the, the Portsmouth manager, Frank Burrows, in 1991, claimed that Oldham could never win away from home. He said, you're, you're not going to beat us, you're not going to beat us, you're going to turn up here and we're going to win. And there's a story that Joe Royal um, pinned that quote up in the dressing room and when they went to Portsmouth, they beat them 4-1. So maybe there was something in the Oldham spirit and from time to time they could win away from home. There were also stories that they had a slightly erratic, well, no, I'll just say extremely financially prudent chairman, Ian Stott. He wouldn't even let the team stay 
in hotels on away days. And so the players always got really tired. And he said, oh, well, if we keep losing, there's no point paying for a hotel. And then Joe Royal, they, they went on a winning streak. And Joe Royal said, well, can't we stay in a hotel now? Haven't we earned the right to stay in a hotel? And Ian Stott turns around and says, oh, well, we don't need to change a winning formula. So it's, it seems like they kind of have their own way of going about things. And then, Jack, eventually it did start to work. Well, it certainly did. As um, I think most people know about the 30 years ago when Oldham Athletic were going for the treble uh, before Manchester United completed the treble. But this was a slightly different treble. They made the FA Cup final. Uh, they made the FA Cup semi-final, the League Cup final, and they were going for promotion in the first division. So um, they actually ended up FA Cup semi-final taking on Manchester United at Manchester City's ground, Main Road, uh, drawing 3-3 in the first leg and eventually losing 2-1 in extra time in the replay. So the FA Cup dream was over. Then they took on Stuart Pearce's uh, Nottingham Forest and Brian Clough's um, and lost 1-0. So the dream looked like it was over. The only way they could redeem it was by getting promoted. And they actually failed to get promoted that season. So what could have been the most incredible season for this this minnow club in and in, in around Manche- Manchester turned out to not be a fantastic season at all. But the following season, they did get promoted and then had four marvellous seasons in, in the Premier League. Or the first of two in the first division, two in the Premier League. It's a shame it came to a tragic end not long after, but they did have an absolutely wonderful 1992-93 season for all the wrong reasons. Because with one week to go, and this people talk about Leicester's great escape, but I would like to say that the great escape at Oldham was even more emphatic than that. Because with a week to go, they were eight points down. They were eight points off Crystal Palace and they needed three wins. And somehow, against all the odds, they got their three wins. Results went their way. And on the last day, they beat Southampton at home for free and stay up. Jack, how do you, do you think there's anything better than that? That there was a pitch invasion at the end they, against all the odds? Um, I mean, that was an incredible escape, wasn't it? Um, an absolutely marvellous one in which they were winning 4-1 against Southampton on that final day. And then Southampton's striker, Matt Letizia, completed his hat-trick uh, mm-hmm. to make it 4-3. And Oldham hung on, and it was a, a marvellous day. I've got the shirt from that. Um, I've, I've really? just bought the retro shirt so that wow. they wore on that day uh, in which they stayed up. But if you're talking about uh, great escapes, I mean, West Bromwich Albion in 2004-05 season, um, under Manchester United legend Brian Robson was has got to be up there in which I think they were, had the lowest point total that anyone's ever had at Christmas and somehow survived or even um, Sunderland under Dick Advocate and under um, Sam Allardyce in back-to-back years so yeah they're, they're great escapes but Oldham's, Oldham were in the first Premier League season that was the first great escape yeah. Sean do you think there's any special science behind a great escape do you think there are certain ingredients that you can put together and guarantee your great escape? I think they are, but I think there's only very few managers that know how to master it and very few teams that can master it. That, that's why they're so special almost. I personally don't even claim to know what these special ingredients are. I'd love to know the recipe. 
and I'm, I don't think very many people do know the recipe. I think half of it might even be luck to a certain extent yeah. and just that desire to keep going and push on. But um, I don't think there's a specific formula for it. Mm. But, um, <laughs> what are we going on about? Ingredients of recipe? <laughs> We're talking about all of them. I'm just trying to find out because I thought Sean Gino was going to start my managerial career. I thought Sean was going to teach me the way. Well, maybe not. And if we move forward to recent history, this is where things get a bit turbulent. We've mentioned the league finishes. Well, Paul Scholes, who has been an Oldham fan all his life, resigned as director at Salford, moved to Oldham, and he was gone after 31 days. Why on earth did that happen? I think the blame has got to be a one-man store, and uh, that one man is Abdullah Lemisan, Lem Lemsagam, Abdullah Lemsagam, who uh, took over from Sammy Corning, who was the Oldham owner for 14 years uh, in 2018, a Moroccan-born owner that, according to Paul Scholes, uh, came in and said and tried to pick the team basically. So. Skulls couldn't get on with his job and I think that's the reason quite a few older managers haven't worked out and I mean I mentioned um, I mentioned Nottingham Forest having a history for sacking managers well Oldham have got to be up there is in recent history sacking the most I mean you're looking at you're looking at uh, Lauren Benid who uh, was a random appointment a real random appointment who had just come from managing in Saudi Arabia I think he was heard a of French manager who once was a Morocco man, uh, a Monaco manager, uh, got oh. appointed, but was sacked earlier in the year. Uh, Frankie Bunn had a short time there. Richie Wellens, who just got promoted with Swindon. John Sheridan, uh, Stephen Robinson, uh, David Dunn. every single manager ever. David Dunn. <laughs> Darren Kelly went in. Darren Kelly went in, and I think he lost his first game 7-0 and his second game 7-1. There. Like, and he was sacked after two games. It, it's a, it's a weird and a wild situation at uh, Oldham Athletic at the moment. And that's why I think I, I've said if any team is going to go down uh, in terms of going over the Macclesfield, in terms of having to go bust during this obviously unprecedented scenes, mm. uh, Oldham Athletic have recorded in the past year record debt. And uh, it looks like they may be fearing for their future. So we may be seeing a similar situation to what happened with Berry if Oldham Athletic aren't able to sort it all out. Yeah, it's a shame. It's as if they've never been able to gain any traction because they're in this area where there are just so many better teams to support. Why not go and support Man United or Man City who are 10 miles away? Why not support Bolton, Blackburn, Premier League winners? Why would anybody support Oldham? But I think there is a charm. There is a charm in Oldham. Apparently, Boundary Park is the coldest ground in the in the UK. Uh, they're missing one stand from the stadium, so the wind whips in. And there, there's something about it. There's a hardiness, but there's also a magic there. And so we say farewell to Oldham Athletic and wish them all the best of luck for the future. That brings us towards... Well, no, it doesn't bring us towards the end. It brings us to the end of this episode of Football Road Trip. When, when we need to get to the uh, gas station, Sean, you're the one who's paying. Well, can any of us actually drive? Yeah. yeah. Me and Luke well. both have cars. Oh, you both can, can't you? Yeah. I forgot it's just me that failed the driving test, actually, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Football Road Trip. 
keep a lookout and we hope we don't crash into your house. 